morning again, and welcome to Mount Calvary Church. We are thankful for so much today. We're thankful for Memorial Day, for the brave men and women who gave up everything, made that sacrifice for us. And it has, on top of that, it has been a heavy week of, of deep tragedy and sadness. Um, and so we, we do come to worship. We're thankful that we can worship the King of Kings who's got everything in his hands. And so that's where we come this morning. Uh, we're encouraged. We've been doing this Love Your Neighbor Month. We wrapped it up last week. We're raising money to, to build a well in Uganda, $16,000. And last, uh, yesterday, there were bake sales and yard sales and all sorts of things happening in our community from, from you raising money for this well. And so we're thankful for all that you're doing. Uh, the money for Never Thirst it will be collected next Sunday. And so if you're not going to be here next Sunday and you want to drop that by the offices, you're free to do that. You can drop that off today. But we are encouraged about all that God's doing. We're thankful. Um, and this morning we are going to begin our time in a new series in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible and can turn to 1 Samuel, um, it's going to be a long series. I don't say that to discourage you. We're going to go chapter by chapter for a long time, but I'm not going to tell you how long. It's going to be good. I'm excited. I think this is, this is perfectly fitting where we are, and the name of the series is One True King. There is no king above our king, the Father who sent the Son and who gives the Spirit. And so this morning, as we kind of launch into this book, I think it's really important for us to have honest, accurate expectations about what the book of 1 Samuel has for us. Because we know in life, in all of life, having accurate, honest, reasonable expectations makes the difference between having a really great time and a really lousy time. That when you go to a restaurant, or you go to Hershey Park, or you go out on a date, or wherever you're, you're going, having expectations that match what you're doing is the difference. It makes the difference. Even if it's not a great situation, if you expect it, it's not nearly as bad as being surprised. And so when we come to a book like 1 Samuel, I think it's really important for us to, to have a background understanding of what, what can we expect with this book. And so just a few things as we get started about what we should not be expecting in 1 Samuel. Okay, we should not be expecting that 1 Samuel is going to be like the book that I was reading my son Jack this week. Jack crawled up on my lap. He had a book that he was given from school, and the name of the book was The Book of Children's Classics. It's this great book, compiled stories of all these classic stories, and Jack was opening up the book, and to whatever page he turned, we would read that story. We read Corduroy and Pig Pig and Miss Rumpus. I mean, I've never heard of some of these, I, I confess. Um, we read Winnie the Pooh, and, and Jack loved every, every second of it. But what, we, what you realize when you're reading through this compilation is that the stories don't build upon one another. These are random stories that are all great, but they don't build upon each other. And so 1 Samuel is not just a compilation of, of classic Sunday school stories. I mean, there are some great stories in 1 Samuel with David and Jonathan and Samuel's call in the middle of the night. 
the vengeance of Saul and Goliath and the cave and the spear. And I mean, we used to do puppet shows to the, I'm going to bust out the puppets this series. I mean, there's some great children's classics that we all know, but what what we're not going to be doing is, is just picking and going from one story to the next. We're starting instead from chapter one, and we're going all the way through the 31 chapters because instead of, of piecemeal stories that don't build upon each other, 1 Samuel is much different. It is a story that builds on itself. As it focuses on different characters, and we see what God does in these different characters. We see from beginning to end, God is developing a theme, or I'm going to call it a thread, a purpose that he is going to teach us through all of these different stories about these wonderful men and women. And so it's not just a set of really awesome Sunday school stories, and nor is it just a compilation of historical facts. Sometimes we look at the first and second Samuels and Chronicles and Kings, and we think this is, this is history, um, just history. I'm reading a book on Normandy, and it's a history book. My mom wants to take us to Normandy to see the beach, to see the battles, to see where my granddad fought. And so, she, so we've been reading this book, and there's maps, and there's dates, and there's timelines, facts, and figures. And I read this book way too late at night, and it puts me to sleep sometimes. But it's interesting, but it's historical, focused on the facts. And 1 Samuel is not that kind of history. I'm not saying 1 Samuel is not historical, but it's not a history book. If you go to 1 Samuel thinking... I'm going to get a chronology of the kings and timelines and maps. You're going to be quickly disappointed. With 1 Samuel, there's gaps and there's details missing. It's very selective in what we see because what we see with 1 Samuel is it's not a history of the chronology of Israel, but instead the writer is taking us on a journey. It's what's called a theology history teaching us a specific point about who God is. And unless the story connects to the point that the author is trying to make, the details aren't given. And so for us, I think it's really important this morning to say, okay, what's the thread? Or what's the theme or the purpose of 1 Samuel that the author is going to continue to come back to, to teach us over and over again through Hannah and Samuel and Saul and David? What's the, what's the theology point that the history is speaking to? And it's the name of this series, just to kind of let you know for the next many weeks what we're going to be talking about. That the point of 1 Samuel is that there is only one true king. Is God the Father, that he has organized everything, and he is supernaturally above and beyond all things, and he is leading us to the one true king. And this is what 1 Samuel, the message that we see time and time again. And so we're going to be in 1 Samuel thinking through how is God teaching us today about our king in our lives. And as we get into chapter 1 and chapter 2, probably the most significant two chapters of the entire book because it lays the foundation. And in Hannah's song in chapter two, the, the rest of the book is going to be coming back to this song that she sings. But it's a really surprising beginning. I mean, if you 
just thought about all the fantastic stories in 1 Samuel with David and Saul and Jonathan. It is surprising that such an action-packed story like 1 Samuel gives us would begin with an obscure, unknown, and hopeless woman like we have with Hannah. But that's in God's providence, what he is telling us, where he's taking us as we kind of launch into 1 Samuel. So let's read the first 20 verses, and then I'll pray. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, the Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year, from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he'd give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had chosen to close her womb. And, the, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put, put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, saying, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I had been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, beyond the voice of mere man, grant that we may hear you speak to the glory of your name, to the good of your people, and for the conversion of those who've yet come to believe. In Christ's name we pray, amen. And the story begins in verse one. A certain man, 
That's, as, that's to say in the Hebrew, this was just a guy, and this guy we know, we know literally nothing about outside of verse 1. I mean, we know the general region that he was from, but this is a in-the-middle-of-nowhere type of region. We know nothing about his family. We know nothing about him. And this is where the whole story begins. It's not, not exactly the riveting beginning you might expect with 1 Samuel. I mean, here's just a random guy. And then you meet Hannah. Hannah, wife number one of two, hopeless, barren, and as you read her story, you can't help but jump ahead 3,000 years to marry another woman in a hopeless situation, a challenging situation, facing an impossible birth, whose faith and following God was, was the seed of all that God's going to do in the church and the promises to all his people. And with Hannah, I mean, here we see a great woman of faith, and it is it is deeply instructive for us today as we think about how God is our one true king. And so we want to see Hannah. We're not skipping ahead. We want to see why does Hannah, why is she the lead here? And what does it teach us today about God being our one true king? And so here's how I broke down the, the, 20, the 28 verses. Her misery in the first eight verses Hannah's king, verses 9 through 20, and then God's work in 21 through 28. So let's start with Hannah's misery, 1 through 8. And I think, I think we'd all agree, right from the very beginning, the author clearly wants us to see Hannah's misery. Not just, not just see Hannah's misery. The author is making this point that we just don't read about her misery, but I think the author wants us to feel the misery. I mean, this is a point that he makes over and over and over again because we, we are to step into and to try to picture how bad things were for Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. And so let's just kind of go with this. Let's kind of picture the misery that Hannah was experiencing, right? In verse 2. Look at verse 2, kind of kicks it off. Penaniah had children, and Hannah had no children. Okay, and so the way that we presume this all worked was that because Hannah couldn't have children, what did Elkanah do? He went and got another wife who could give him the children he wanted. We know that this is called polygamy. Poly polygamy in the Old Testament it's never condoned. It's tolerated. But every single time in the Old Testament, if you go back from Genesis and you trace it all the way here to the story in 1 Samuel, when you see polygamy, though it's not strictly speaking against, it's condoned, it's tolerated, it is dysfunctional, and it is chaotic, and it is a cause for darkness. It's not the design for God. And so when we see polygamy, it should cause us to say, okay, this was a dysfunctional marriage. There's darkness, and there's chaos, there are challenges with this family because of this, of this situation with, with Penaniah and Hannah and Elkanah. But it wasn't just that there was a second wife, which was part of the family, so she wasn't able to have children. So it's not just there's another lady, that's another wife, it's that 
she is stuck and barren and unable to have kids. And I know I've, I've said this before, but probably the most the, probably the deepest struggle that I've walked people with, families with, is the inability to have children. And I've seen it time and time again. Families who for decades, decades, long, a long time, have struggled and been broken, completely broken, because more than anything else in the world, they want children, but they can't have them. It's not happening. And so this this is the scene for Hannah. And I just want you to think for just a moment, as painful as it would be, and perhaps that's where you are, as painful as it would be for us to not, for you to not be able to have children, I would, I would make the case or the argument that for Hannah, it was even more challenge, challenging and even a deeper struggle for her not to be able to have children because of the culture that she lived in. So think about this. So for her... And for this culture in Israel, I mean, her family was the determining factor for everything. Literally everything. Your income. If you wanted someone to work your field, it was your children who would work the field. If you wanted someone to take care of you when you were sick or getting older, it was your children who did this. If you wanted your tribe to be safe and protected. I mean, your tribe and your nation depended on your children to protect them. And though we certainly can feel that today, the, the, the ability to have children was such a core social value in this culture. It was a life or death situation, literally. And so this became a social value that it was such an important thing in this culture that to not be able to have kids was to be a complete shame, was to be worthless and useless. And the ability to have lots of kids was to be a hero, to be a blessing, to be highly favored. And so this is just a, a taste of what Hannah would have been experiencing in a, in a day where having children was the most important thing for your family. Hannah was unable. And Hannah wasn't just, wasn't that she was in, a, it was in a marriage with a husband who had another wife. It wasn't that she was even unable to have children, but it tells us Penaniah at the same time was that social voice in her life completely demeaning her. And so uh, this, is the, this is just a picture of the misery of Hannah. And, and this really not functional family. Can you picture them going on vacation together? Getting on the camels to go to Shiloh, to go worship. Kids, kids and camels and wives and people. And it's like, no thank you. But this is what they do. And Penaniah, what does it say about what Penaniah, how Penaniah treats Hannah? Look at verse 6. Her rival used to provoke her, verse 6 says. It's not hard to, to picture what Hannah would what Hannah was being told. You're worthless. You're worthless. You're cursed. You're good for nothing. But then the next word that it's used, it uses to describe Hannah is the word irritated. Hannah was irritated. Kind of an interesting English word, but in the Hebrew, it's a really surprising word usage. The only other time that this, I'll say it like this. 
This word is never used outside of this verse to describe the inner state of another person. Every time this word irritated is used, it's talking about a physical calamity, a hurricane, a strong wind, and the, the, the damage that this, these physical phenomenons are causing to the world that we live in. And that same word, that's how it's used all through the Old Testament, is now being used to describe the inner state of Hannah. Why? Because we know Hannah is despondent. I mean, she is completely and utterly broken by all the things that she's facing. And so reading verse 7, then it makes sense. In verse 7b, Hannah wept and she would not eat. Verse 16 Speaking to, the, to Eli, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. I mean, this is her misery. I mean, this is what the culture is telling her. This is what Penaniah is telling her. This is what she's telling herself. This is what she's experiencing and feeling. I mean, she is deeply depressed. She has no purpose because she has no children. And so this is the setting that leads us to the second scene in verse 9, really verse 8, where Elkanah tries to step in and to try to help and fix the situation. I can relate to Elkanah wanting to fix the situation, not having the two wives part, but trying to fix the situation, wanting to fix the situation. And it's kind of comical how Elkanah really messes this whole thing up. I mean, what does he do? They get to, they finally get to Shiloh. I mean, he's, he's cognizant of Hannah's not doing well. And so does a really interesting thing. He gives her a double portion. Like wives, we, you know, right? That typically is not a, soothe, a way to soothe your anxiety to give you an extra helping of mashed potatoes. But this is what, this is what he does. But why, what makes it even harder that, that Penaniah is sitting there and she's saying, wait a second. Look at all these kids. Hannah's not even eating. She's depressed. She's wasting this food. And you're trying to fix this situation, Elkanah, by giving her food. And now you are, you are leaving us to be hungry. And so Elkanah is trying to fix the situation, to help the situation. But it is only making it worse. And then in verse, verse 9, or verse 8, he comes to her and he asks a couple of questions. And, he, and again, wrong question, Elkanah. Wrong question. Stop talking. Verse 8. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Like, yeah, stop it. He's saying, his heart is, I want, look at what you have. What he's saying is, is he's saying, let me be the center of your life. Let me be your foundation. Let me be the one that brings you joy and comfort. Stop worrying about what this pressure that you're getting from Penaniah and the culture and all the world. Let me be your foundation. And so you could kind of picture Hannah. I mean, she's provoked and irritated by Penaniah. She's depressed and not eating. Her husband's trying to fix it, and her husband's speaking in her other ear saying, let me be your foundation. Let me be your joy. And then in verse 9, we get the turning point of chapter 1. 
after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now that's the key word. Underline it, circle it. I mean, that is the word, the hinge of chapter 1. What were, what were Penaniah and Elkanah doing? Eating and drinking. I mean, the picture is they are lounging, and they are doing nothing, but they are feeding themselves. What was Eli the priest doing at the temple? He's sitting. And Hannah got up to do something. It doesn't just mean the word rose. It's actually arose. It doesn't just mean she physically got up, though she did physically get up. But, but what it's signifying when we see this word in the Old Testament, it's, it's this decisive change of action, this point where you're saying it is time to make a move. It is time to do something decisive. And so Hannah is about to do something. And if we hadn't read ahead, I think where we'd be left, if we had just read that Hannah got up, we would be thinking, well, what has Hannah got up to do? I mean, is she going to go, go after Penaniah? Get, get her, hit, her in the, hit her in the face or attack her, slap her for all the things that she's being provoked and irritated by. I don't condone that, but that's what you're thinking. Like, she's going to go and get Penaniah. Or is she going to listen to her husband that, that he is more to her than 10 cents? Is she going to run away with Elkanah? Like, she arose. Now she's going to listen to her husband and make him the centerpiece, and they are going to leave the temple and leave Penaniah I mean, what is she getting up to do? I mean, these two voices in her head, that the children, your children are your, your centerpiece and your foundation. They are your king. They are the king of your life. That's the culture. The husband saying, I am your king. I am your everything. I am more to you than any of that. And Hannah gets up and she arises. And what does she go to do? To neither of those. Look at what she does in verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give, to hi give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and no razor shall touch his head. I mean, this is a remarkable prayer. It's not her kids, the king of her life. It's not her husband. She comes before the king of kings and says, you are my king. And so look at what she, first of all, the emotion in this prayer that is just remarkable. 1 Samuel 1, 15. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And she holds nothing back in her prayer. Nothing. We talked about this at the end of 1 Peter. Casting your anxiety, not carrying it. And in her emotion and in her woundedness, I mean, she comes before, and the, the picture of her pouring out her soul, saying, this is my struggle. This is my wound. This is my challenge, and she lays it at the feet of the Father. It's not just her emotion. It's not just the way that she prays honestly, though there's a lot that we can take from that. 
but it's also the content of her prayer. She says, O Lord of hosts. O Lord of hosts. And we know this title. This is to say, O mighty God, you are powerful and you are transcendent. You hold the galaxies and the stars. You are, the, the, you are in charge of the armies of all the angels. O Lord Almighty. And she pairs that with this deep theology of God's power and might and control. She pairs that with another phrase. Remember me. Remember me. An obscure, barren, hopeless, helpless woman. Help me. Remember me. Be faithful to me. That God is not so far off and so powerful that he doesn't care about the most obscure and challenging situation. She's saying, that is my God. He is both. And then she makes a vow. It's a Nazarite vow. And I think this is key to kind of understanding her heart in this moment. Okay, to be a priest in Israel, you know you have to be born from the tribe of Levi. Okay, so it was a family business. You were born in the right tribe. You could go and serve in the temple day and night. Well, there was one exception or one alternative way to become a priest in the temple. It was to take a Nazarite vow to, to say as a person, as a male to say, I will not drink wine, I will not cut my hair, and I dedicate myself to serving in the temple. And so what Hannah is doing here is significant. She's saying, I will, before my son is born, I will vow and commit to giving him to you, God, as a, as a Nazarite who can serve in the temple. I mean, the significance of what she's saying, she's saying, if you give me a son he will not be my foundation. I mean, you see that. She's saying, give me a sign. And, and the culture says your children are everything. They're your security. They're your income. They take care of you. They're your pride. I mean, they are your king. That's what the culture's screaming. And what she's saying here is, God, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. I mean, it's remarkable. She's committing to, my children will not be my foundation. I mean, what a prayer. And then Eli, who we know is clueless at this point, but verse 17, he says, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Verse 18, look at this. This is, I think, what teaches us that that's what she's doing. She said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. The woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. You hear that? You get that? You with me? Her joy happened before she had a son. Eli said, well, may the Lord grant your, your request, but we don't, I don't know that she would have necessarily believed Eli the priest. You couldn't even tell that she was praying. Her joy wasn't connected to her pregnancy with Samuel. It wasn't she prayed, God, God gave her Samuel, and then she was no longer sad. What happened with Hannah was she prayed and she gave her son to God, her potential son to God, and she realized that her only king is the Lord God of hosts. And because she realized that she could put that at his throne, at his feet, that now she can have joy. 
And so this, this was a breakthrough moment. Her joy, her happiness was found only in the king of kings. And so then we see this last scene in verse 21 and through 28. We didn't read it, but Samuel is finally born. And now they're Elkanah and Hannah are talking about following through with the Nazarite vow because at some point they have to take the son back to the temple in Shiloh and, and let God use him in the temple. And so they're talking in 21 through 28 when they should do that. Elkanah's kind of like, it's time. Like we made the commitment, it's time to go. And Hannah's like, just calm down. I'm going to wean him first so that he's not dependent on my milk, and then we will go to the temple. But there's one line that, Sam, or that, that Elkanah says that I think kind of sets the stage, not only for chapter 1, but sets the stage for chapter 2 and the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. He says in verse 23, says, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. May the Lord establish his word. When you hear that, it's like, the first thought is, well, what did God say to them? What was the word of God in chapter 1? You go and read it. God doesn't speak to them. He doesn't speak to them in chapter 2. And so what we think this is talking about is the plan and the promises and the fulfillment of what God is doing through this one woman in his grander plan, as if to say, your will be done, O sovereign God of the universe. And so here's the picture that we see here in chapter 1. God, in his establishing of his word, is reaching down into this situation and saying, I'm in complete control, and I am guiding this situation, orchestrating this situation so that Hannah, an obscure barren woman would come to the place that she realizes that I am the worthy king of kings and no one else. He's leading Hannah to do that. He's causing the circumstances so that Hannah gets to the point where she realizes, all I have is you, God. And so for us this morning, I think it is so important, it is so helpful for us, whatever we experience, to realize God is reaching down in whatever situation that you're in, and his heart and his hope is to guide you today in your pain and in your turmoil to him and him alone. In your heartbreak, in your misery, whatever it is that's causing you to be sad and depressed and discouraged and in turmoil, to know that God is in complete control, and he wants you to get to the point where you come before him, whether he gives you what you want or he doesn't, that, that, that he is leading you to come to the place where you know he is the king of all kings. Marriage dysfunction. He is reaching down into the dysfunction of this marriage, and he's orchestrating and using this circumstance to take them to the place where all they have is to say, you are the king of kings. The whole culture, Israel, the, 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 the pulse of the time for Israel was not a really positive time. This is the time of judges. You want to feel discouraged in your morning devotions this week? Take on some of the book of Judges. It's not warm and cheery. 
this is the, this is the political, the religious setting of 1 Samuel. And what is God saying? I am reaching down. The, the world is falling apart. Your marriage is falling apart. You're falling apart. Yet I am orchestrating it all so that you would come to the place and you would realize the only one that is worthy of your worship and your foundation and your center is the king of all kings. And so for us this morning, that we wouldn't turn to little kings, that we wouldn't turn to children or jobs or anything else, that the only one worthy, even in our sadness, the only one worthy is the king of all kings, where we can come and say, O Lord of hosts, remember me. And however you remember me, your will be done. Glory to the Father to the Father alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Hannah and how it speaks to us about your providence and your sovereignty, how you were doing something in Hannah, very specifically for the history of Israel, for the good of us today. And so God, we thank you for the providence that we see in your hand in this story. And God, I pray that as we come to you now in our own misery, that there are people here today who are discouraged and struggling, who are sad, who are depressed and discouraged. God, I pray that we would come to you as the one and only King of Kings, that we can come to you even in the midst of our sadness, and we can bow down before you just like Hannah did, knowing you may not answer our prayer but even if you're not, it's okay because that's not our foundation. You are the foundation alone. And so, God, I pray that as we sing these songs, as we take communion, that they would be our prayer, they'd be our hope, God, and that you would work in our lives as we make you the one true king of, of everything. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, church, let's stand and sing as we turn our gaze upon Jesus this morning. from glory took on flesh to save the lost grace and mercy displayed upon the cross our redemption is the hope for all mankind one name over everything one name over Can I? 